NFR Extra follows all your favorite cowboys, interviews legends of rodeo, and talks to the best of country music. Follow Nevada Caldwell, Ryland Bentley, and Steve Godert every week as they delve deep into the stories behind the road to gold in Vegas at the National Finals Rodeo. It's revealing, comedic, and sometimes emotional. Find it on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. NFR Extra, all dirt, all rodeo, all year. When I first started steer wrestling, it was because of fear. I feel like I was successful. No matter how scared I am, I'm going to try it and hope for the best. This is baby Luke Brian Quino. Last night with a 3-5, he was going to get it. He broke the line. Get it tonight. California! California! Look at this! Look at this! One-tenth of a second from the arena record. 3.1. Come on, Vegas! Tell him you like it! One-tenth of a second off the arena record. Fortunately, this week for me, there was a lot of booty shaking going on. Uh, it's still a little embarrassing, but, uh, you know, the crowd seems to love it, which I don't get. Who wants to see a overweight guy shaking their butt? But, uh, you know, fortunately for me, the crowd loves it, and, and I got to do it a lot this year at the finals uh, because I had such a great year. Today, we sit down with five-time world champion Luke Branquino for our Rodeo is Life segment. Luke entered the pro rodeo universe with a bang, winning the PRCA overall and steer wrestling rookie of the year in 2000. That was just the appetizer of his career while grabbing five gold buckles in the big man's event, which is only one shy of Homer Pettigrew's record of six. He qualified for the Super Bowl of Rodeo 14 times along his championship run while setting a record of 25 go-round wins. His consistency has paid off at the Thomas Mack Center, winning the NFR average title three times with an impressive $2.5 million plus in career earnings. Luke shares his family life during the pandemic, growing up as a rancher, his incredible gold buckle run, balancing type 1 diabetes, how much more he's got left in the tank, and a lot more on NFR Extra. 120 of the best cowboys and barrel racers rode into Las Vegas last December and left $10 million richer. The chase for 2020 has already begun, and all champions are hungry for gold. Be sure to follow your favorite cowboys, barrel racers, and local rodeos all season long. It all leads to one place, the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo. Learn more at NFRExperience.com. This is the NFR. This is Vegas. Hi, I'm Steve Duhon, three-time world champion steer wrestler, and you're listening to NFR Extra. Welcome, five-time world champ, Luke Branquino. Welcome to NFR Extra, Luke. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. You don't get to be heard very much with everything going on nowadays. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's been a bizarre time since March for everybody. First of all, five times, you world champ, and I just, it's like, wow. 2004, 2008, 2011, 12, 14. That's that's a good span of uh, of a run of championships. I got to tell you. Yeah, I've had a very fortunate career, and you know, hopefully, uh, you know, once this thing's over, kind of add some more to that resume. But uh, you know, right now it's just kind of it's been. I'm I'm not gonna lie. It's been nice to be able to stay at home with the family and stuff that most rodeo cowboys that you know anybody that's rodeoed for a living knows that this is the hardest part about rodeo and being away from the family and and everything there and so getting back on the road dang sure is is going to be fun but it's been nice to be able to spend, get to spend time with family yeah so okay so you bring up family this is in and correct me if i'm wrong in this place los olivios with wife right Lindsay, sons Cade, jameson and bear is that right that's correct yeah we we were actually in los alamos and had some people that uh, <clears throat> really wanted the land we were on so we end up making a little move and it wasn't far about 10 15 minutes from the old place but uh it was dang sure a move and it's been almost a year ago first of august is when we 
moved into Los Olivos and trying to get things organized to make it where it fits our style a little bit better. It's been, it hasn't been a challenge, but it's been work, especially when we first moved, I just had ACL and knee surgery. So it was, uh, it, it was dang sure uh, trying times for me, but we're getting it handled. Yeah. And you've got some other family members there, right? Rowdy and Rebel. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I got dang sure you have the horses and my folks are, uh, right here on the place with us so it makes it nice when when i do need to leave and the boys can stay with them and it's nothing for for the kids to go out and saddle their own horses now with with all the with the pins we have to keep them in besides what you know hanging with the family which yeah I, we all agree and everyone that we've interviewed on here uh since march uh kind of comes back to that sentiment what you're talking about it could hang with family a lot of things that you don't realize that there's a blessing with this this uh, virus but what have you been doing besides that? I mean, there's been some competition. There's definitely been some rodeos. Uh, I understand you, you're a rancher. So what, what else have you been doing during this time? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what we do even when we're all rodeoing full-time. I just get to focus a little more time on it. You know, we're, we farm hay. We have about 200 acres that we put up in oat hay. So, you know, got the groundwork planted and was able to get it all up in a decent amount of time. Uh, we did good this year, about three and a half tons of acre on our oat hay. Uh, we have the cattle operation here. We run about 450 mother cows. And so that keeps us busy. And, you know, my dad is, at his age is kind of slowing down and I've been kind of taking over that. And then also started a, started kind of up a business with some people in Texas. Uh, I guess I didn't, wouldn't say I started it, but I've been helping them with it. Uh, Whitestone premium beef and gold star Wagyu, you know, full blood Wagyu and we have F1 Wagyu and, and then our Angus herd and Jared Moore out of Texas and, and Kara Hutton there right there in Weatherford is where we're kind of having the storefront operations and things going there. And it's been good. It's been fun, you know, learning a lot about uh, not just, uh, you know, before I just knew how to throw steers down. Now I know how to cut them up and how to sell their, sell them when they, when they get butchered. And uh, it's been, it's been an experience, but, you know, fortunately for me, I think it's something that can carry over after, you know, not just the farming and ranching, but after rodeo's over and getting the meat selling business. I've had a lot of in lot of lot of great feedback from the locals around here that have bought it and loved it and trying to get into some restaurants and kind of going going that route too. And you know, without Karen and Jared doing what they're doing, I wouldn't be in the meat business. I'd still be just be a farmer and a rancher. But uh, you know, it's amazing the the wagyu and the Angus and and all the different styles and flavor profiles and tenderness that you get again something i didn't know uh until this year you know we had uh chris bolin on from rodeo houston and we dove into that side for like about a few minutes and it could have went on for the whole episode and our other host um steve goder we're talking about angus and way good and god man i mean that's some fantastic meat but what a whole other world uh as you go down that world as i'm learning hanging out with steve on this show and what chris shared with us i but i got a question for you so based on your experiences like you know, being a baby of three cowboy brothers. How, let's go back to your, your boys. How do you think your baby boy bear has an advantage or disadvantage being that little guy? Oh, he's, uh, I don't know about a disadvantage other than he, he doesn't get, I guess, uh, I wouldn't say as much attention because I just feel comfortable letting him do whatever he wants. He's kind of the boss, Lindsay, you know, Lindsay, same way. He, he, he runs the show. Um, we've been, uh, <laughs> it, I guess I'm the youngest of three, so I'm trying to think if that's how I was at that age. And if it was, I feel bad for my parents. But uh, yeah, he he uh, he definitely has an advantage. He he knows how to handle rope. He swings rope better than I do now, just from being the youngest and being around his older brothers and everything. So, you know, I think it's uh, in one way it's a blessing because he knows so much, and in the other way. It makes him think he's the boss because he does know so much at such a young age. So you're talking, I mean, here we are talking about your brothers, talking about family, ranching, uh, your fifth generation, right? With your family coming from farm or ranching uh, from, man, beautiful part of, of California or any part of California. I mean, the West Coast, it's awesome over there. What is like that upbringing? You know, there's, as I know, there's a lot of work that entails from, from, from sunup to sundown. How's that applied to your rodeo arena, how you've done things there and giving you this advantage in life as far as competing and just living life? Yeah, you know, from a young age, that was before we even got into rodeo, being on a ranch and farming, that was the way life. You got up, you worked hard for what you, you know, what you were earning. And, and again, that translates 
not only into rodeo, but anybody that's grew up on a farm or a ranch, whether they go into rodeo or whatever it is, you know, that you apply those to any or other everyday life skills and you're going to be that much more successful. The hard work, the determination, the willingness to do whatever it takes to get the job done. And to me, that is farming and ranching. You have to be willing to do whatever it takes to get the job done. You know, you, you sacrifice sleep, you sacrifice, you know, sometimes hospital visits because you're going so hard, you get hurt, whatever. I mean, there's there's so much that you, you sacrifice being a farm rancher, but in the end, it pays off because of what you get at, at the end, the end result, you know, and, and that translates so much into the rodeo world for me, you know, at a young age, knowing what my dad and mom had taught us about working hard to get what you want, we put that in the arena. And I think that has helped me tremendously with the success I've had in my career. Yeah. And it sounds like mom's pretty handy uh, on the ranch in the arena. Is that right? Oh yeah. I'd match her against a lot of cowboys. She, uh, you know, from the time I was born, she'd always been on the back of a horse helping my dad. You know, she, she runs the books and she, she's the boss. We just kind of do what she says. (laughs) You know, she was on the back of a horse giving lessons this morning and then once the lessons got over, we had to sort some heifers off steers that we're going to vaccinate and, and, uh, work. And, and she was right there in the pen sorting while my dad and I were hauling stuff or getting medicine ready and moving stuff around. So, you know, uh, when I talk about my family, obviously my mother was just as supportive and hands-on as my dad was in everything we ever did in life. Man, that's cool though. Sounds like Luke, I mean, you've had a, just a great upbringing hardworking family and you guys are very connected. That's uh, some good stuff, man. It sounds like rodeo to me, rodeo life, rodeo family. That's it. Very fortunate, you know, and, and I couldn't, I, I dang sure wouldn't be where I'm at today without their support and, and everything. I mean, growing up through high school, junior rodeo high school, they hauled us everywhere, make sure, made sure we had horses that we were able to compete on, you know, whether we trained them ourselves or we had to go out and find them or cattle to practice on arena lights whatever you know they were they were all about us giving us the best opportunity whether it was rodeo they never did force it on us uh, or ranching or riding horses or baseball you know if you guys want to do whatever you want to do we're going to support you and that that was the key type 1 diabetes clearly you know you've grown up with this you know what age did this hit you or did, did you find out about this and how has this you know I, I think of adversity but a lot of times as someone like yourself who's a, a multiple champion How's this helped you kind of catapult to where you are today? Yeah, and I was, I was diagnosed uh, when I was 18. Uh, just I just had shoulder surgery uh, on my right arm. Went, uh, went and had surgery about four weeks, five weeks after my surgery. I started feeling pretty crappy. Um, thought I didn't know what it was. I was going to college, my freshman year of college. So, you know, you're sick, you're don't feel good you're dehydrated what do you do you drink Gatorade because that's what they say you know when you're dehydrated drink Gatorade not knowing that was just killing me mm. um you know and drove home and when I got home I stopped urgent care and they told me my blood sugar was 937 something Ooh, crazy like wow. that and they said much longer I, I probably wouldn't be here today and so I mean blessing that I got to the doctor when I did they found out what it was and, uh, you know, sitting in the hospital, I was there for a couple of days while they had IV fluids getting in me and trying to get my levels or insulin level back down, blood sugar back down. You know, I think, oh, I'm not going to be able to do anything I love. I'm not going to be able to rodeo, I'm not going to be able to hunt, not anything. And again, through family support, you know, the, the main thing was family support saying, you know, you can do whatever you want. This, this is, it's not even a bump in the road. You have to manage it. You have to take care of yourself, but to be an athlete, you have to do that anyway. So just add this to your, you know, to your repertoire and you'd be good to go. So I did, I took that and, and, uh, you know, their love support and encouragement and, and it hasn't slowed me down at all. And that's what I try to tell anybody that says, you know, they have diabetes or what can they do to, to better their livelihood with their diabetes. And, all you have to do is take care of yourself. I mean, it's not that hard to eat a little bit better, test your blood sugar. And, and for me, there's, there's simple things. Drinking a lot of water is, is key for me. If I could do that, my blood sugar levels stay pretty good, you know, and don't, don't be so strict on yourself where you don't enjoy your life. I'm not going to lie. I have a piece of cake. I have donuts. I have, 
you know, the stuff that they say is not healthy and good for you. Well, it's not healthy and good for anybody, obviously, or, you know, we'd all be enjoying it on a daily basis every hour if it was me. But, um, you know, enjoy your life and live, but you have to just watch your blood sugar levels, make sure your doctor's on the same page with you. And, and that's what I did. You know, my doctor said, you're, you're going to be on the road 280 days out of the year. This is where I feel like you need to be. And knock on wood, the last couple of years, my A1C um, has been under seven, which my doctor is very happy with. I've had it down to 6.4 a few times, um, you know, which they kind of say is close to pre-diabetes. So, you know, with, with, with family support, obviously my wife making sure that I'm not going overboard on my goodies and enjoying my life too much. Um, you know, she's been, she's been a rock for me on it too, you know, very encouraging and, and helpful, but, uh, you know, take care of yourself, maintain your healthy lifestyle, but don't make sure you enjoy it. All right. So let's talk about NFR real quick, because you come to NFR, you're staying at hotels and, you know, obviously the champs, you guys, or even just everyone that's at the 120 contestants come down there. You're, you're laid up in a pretty good place. I mean, what do you kind of do during that time to kind of avoid, as you would say, the cake? Because there's a lot of that stuff around Vegas. And I know back in the uh, the rooms, the contestant rooms, there's plenty to uh, get after. I mean, is there a kind of an approach knowing that you've been to the NFR so many years that you kind of approach every day down there? Yeah, I mean, it's just uh, self-control, really. And to be honest with you, when you're when I'm in a competition like that or that level of competition, I'm not worried about eating anything. I'm, you know, if there's a cookie, I'll grab them, but I'm worried about... I'm con- I'm focused on what I'm going to do with the animal I have drawn that night at the Thomas and Mac, you know, back in the contestant area or during the day it's, you know, up in the morning at eight shower, head to the convention center, go sign autographs, maybe have a cup of coffee and a little breakfast, uh, try to get room service back for lunch. And usually it's a later lunch and then have a nap and then right out to the arena. And if things go good, hopefully you're at the South point, uh, collecting your buckle and, eating either at uh, the Mexican restaurant or the Silverado Steakhouse. <laughs> if you're high roller like Trevor Brazil, you probably eat at Michael's, which uh, <laughs> another fabulous place. But, uh, and if not, you back to the room and either have room service. And again, room service menus, they're, they're, they have plenty of good options on them. Luke, that is an impressive balancing act with the fine dining we have in Las Vegas. Let's stop there to take a break. When we come back, let's talk about who has helped you along the way and that impressive rookie year of yours. Dose of social, a dash of insider info. Then the National Finals Rodeo Social Network is set up just for you. Get updates, insight, unique content, and much more on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. You can find us at Las Vegas NFR. And be sure to use hashtag WranglerNFR on your posts and tweets. There's something for all rodeo fans. This is the NFR. This is Vegas. To celebrate the 35th anniversary of the National Finals Rodeo in Las Vegas, LVE and PRCA present the Top 35 Most Memorable Moments. Few knew at the 2000 Wrangler NFR that the Steer Wrestling Rookie of the Year was a superstar in the making. Luke Branquino would win his first world title four years later He claimed number two in 2008 and exploded for three in a four-year stretch in 2011, 12, and 14. Along the way, he back-ended into a signature victory move. It's called the Branquino Booty Shake. That jiggle is bad news for the competition. Branquino has won 25 rounds at the Thomas & Mack. That is a steer wrestling record. In 2004, en route to his first gold buckle, Luke threw five of the 10 head in 3.9 seconds or faster. His win in round two with a run of 3.1 seconds was just one-tenth of a second off the arena record. Luke has won three NFR average titles, tying him for second most all-time, and he qualified 14 times for the NFR in a 15-year stretch between 2001 in 2015. By the way, his five steer wrestling gold buckles is second best. Just one world title behind fellow steer wrestling legend, Homer Pettigrew. 
Hi, I'm Tyler Pearson, world champion steer wrestler, and you're listening to NFR Extra. We are here with world champ bulldogger Luke Branquino for our Rodeo is Life segment. On his way to winning his first gold buckle, Luke threw five steers in 3.9 seconds or faster at the 2004 NFR. So you, you're talking about family. Clearly, they're in your corner, and they're a huge part of your success and this consistency of things that you get to do in life. When you first started bulldogging, who helped you along the way? I mean, there's had to been some other folks outside of there that were influenced and pushed you along or kind of you know mentored you. Is there any individuals out there? Yeah, I mean, for sure. When I first started, I started sliding steers and jumping the bale when I was 11 years old. You know, we had some miniature steer, or not many, just dwarf steers that my parents would get in loads of cattle that they'd team rope, and those were what we'd bulldog, or I would. But my brother Casey started bulldogging uh, in high school, and I just kind of followed from there. But there was a gentleman by the name of John Black that had rodeoed with John W. Jones and just missed the finals one year in the steer wrestling he spent a lot of time out at the ranch him and another guy by the name of joey ames they they spent a lot of time out of the ranch with my brother casey and really helped me with my skills and and i was so young it was you know i'd go out there every so often and slide steers and mess around but they were very very much influencers of me being coming a steer wrestler and, and helping me along the way and you know i'd watch videos of guys john w jones butch myers Duhon, Oatberry, guys like that, that I was just focused in on being the best. So with the help from John Black and Joey Ames and watching the videos and watching the other guys on, on, uh, you know, the TV, I was focused in on not necessarily a certain style, but my own style. I'd pick little bits and pieces out from those guys. Uh, and then once I started rodeoing, you know, in high school, I'd went to a Vince Walker and a Trap Cadwell Bulldog in school, which I ended up rodeoing with my rookie year and, and years after that. And those guys were very helpful for me and, and uh, you know, taught me a lot about the rodeo business. Okay, so at 11 years old, somewhere along the way, you were sitting there thinking in your head, gold buckles setting records. I mean, what when did that start to set in for you? Like that you were, this is it, man. Steer wrestling is going to be what I do, and I'm, I'm going to be a champ. There had to have been at some point that that hit you. Yeah, in high school, I felt like it was my main event. I didn't rope very good. Um, I, my When I swung a loop, I'd always have a figure eight in it. But, I mean, I was I won decent amount in the roping events, but steer wrestling just seemed to come more natural to me. And uh, I always thought about, you know, yeah, making the NFR, being a champion after winning the state high school association and, and doing decent nationals and then making the college finals and, you know, in and, and all the events, not just the, the steer wrestling, but um, my rookie year when I was PRCA rodeoing, I had a goal and it was to become rookie of the year. I missed the national finals by $1,300 that year, ended up 16th. So at that point, I thought, why would you set your goal at something there when you could set it so much higher and achieve everything underneath it? So from that point on, I was like, shoot for the moon. If you miss, you're going to be among the stars. And uh, when I, you know, set those goals after that, it was to be the very best that there ever was, be a world champion. And, and you know, anything underneath that was just a bonus. Yeah, you definitely, uh, obviously, your, your record speaks for itself on that one. Let's go back to when you were, you know, coming up as a teenager and high school and college rodeo career. Are there some highlights that stick out in your mind that like, man, I just love that stuff? Or, or were there more growing pains? Like I always think of Michael Jordan, right? Like they always say, he got cut from his high school team twice. You know, Michael Jordan did, right? What were the positive negatives coming out of that that point that where you knew going pro? But what were some highlights back then? Well, I think, like anything, especially in the rodeo world, you, you can go one week on the highest of high notes and then the next month, you know, on the lowest low, whether you miss steers, you can't get one throw down, you take wreck after wreck. And my uh, junior year, I'd had surgery. So I'd missed pretty much all my junior year of rodeo. And, and I could remember sitting in the arena thinking, I can't wait to get back out here. Uh, I need I need to be back out here. And, you know, you pick apart everything in your career up to that point, which was high school. So there's not a lot of big career, but you pick all the positives out and uh, again, try to do that with throughout my whole career is what my plan was. And, you know, I can remember 
again, highs and high, highs of the highs in high school, lows of the lows of missing steers for months after month. And then all of a sudden it clicks again. You start throwing the heck out of them, making good runs, riding your horse better. So I think all those things, you know, play a role in the success of, you know, of your career. But the main thing, and I try to tell kids and people this, don't focus on the negative, focus on the positive. There's going to be negative and you're going to feel it. You're going to know it. You're going to hear it. Don't put that at the forefront. Always focus on the positive. A rule is you only have five minutes to think about a run you made if it was bad. So five minutes, what do I need to do to fix it? Boom, go to the next one. And that's, to me, what will help make a successful rodeo cowboy or cowgirl. And I think that's what really helped me. Well, that makes sense. And, I mean, as we further on down here this conversation, I think we'll touch on some of that consistency and why that makes sense. Um, did you – I mean, look, I, I when I look at steer wrestlers, I always think of like linebackers, Oklahoma linebackers or like just big dudes. And you, to me, remind me of like a like like a Warren Sapp kind of guy. Like he's super athletic and get after it. I mean, did you play other sports as well? Um, knowing that you're I mean, you're a high you're a high quality athlete, man. You had to have been doing something else, too. I did. I played uh, baseball all four years in high school. I was a catcher. Uh Tried, was going to play football, started out, and the coach kind of said, hey, you got to, you know, maybe pick one or the other. I don't know that you'll be able to do rodeo and football. So at that point, I was just doing ro- football to do it. I wasn't, didn't have any, you know, aspirations on going any further in in football. So obviously I picked rodeo, and baseball coach was awesome. He, he said, you know, hey, come out, we could use you. Played catcher, loved it. Uh, Went to college, was going to college rodeo and play cat and play baseball and end up hurting my shoulder and end up having surgery, like I said, in my freshman year. And it was my right arm, so couldn't quite throw the ball like I needed to. And um, other than that, I wasn't very good at base or basketball. I'm good enough to think I'm, or I'm bad enough to think I'm good enough at golf, if that makes sense. Yep. <laughs> but uh, other than that, it's been baseball. Love baseball. Love everything about it. Nice. Let's, uh, let's fast forward to 2000. You know, you, um, and I, I always think that the, the bar gets set pretty quick when you do these kind of things, you know, and you already talked about it a little bit. So overall and steer wrestling rookie of the year. And I know you can elaborate. Let's just kind of expand on it a little bit more. What was the learning curve for that first year when you turned pro and that taste of just not making that far? How much did that catapult you going forward, truly catapult you? Oh, it, it was huge, you know. And had I made the NFR that year, and thought, man, this thing comes easy, I may not have been in the situation I'm in. You know, everything happens for a reason. I can remember, uh, you know, everybody's thinking back, you missed by $1,300, there was this one steer here, there was this one steer there. Well, I could think back on that whole year, there's about 40 or 50 steers that could have made that difference. You know, and it just didn't happen. It was mental mistakes on my part that cost me making the NFR, but was a huge learning curve for me. I sat uh, my well, one of my old college roommates' apartments in San Luis after the San Francisco, after the Cow Palace in San Francisco. So the season had just ended on that Sunday, short round. Last year got run for the season. I was at his house Sunday night, and we did what college kids would do and, and went on a uh, bender for about four or five days. <laughs> and uh, that once that four or five days was over, I thought, this is this is perfect. I get back. I get to go do what I love to do again in not very many more weeks. I went back, started practicing, started working harder, focused on scoring, focused on not making mental mistakes. And, um, you know, again, I think everything happens for a reason. And and me missing the NFR my rookie year, again, blessing in disguise because it made me motivated more so than I was and made me focus on what I needed to focus on to be more successful. Oh, man, that's awesome. You kind of – we talked about this with your mentors, but is there – some heroes that you looked up to or that maybe you're all of a sudden here you are, you're competing at Thomas Mack Center or, you know, Calgary, et cetera, wherever you're competing. Are there some guys that you were seeing as you're young and they're still there uh, pulling down steer with some, some, some heroes that you caught up to or that you've got to get access to all of a sudden as you started moving up the ranks? Yeah. I mean, for sure. I, my permit year, I had John W. Jones hazing for me at these California circuit rodeos. I mean, how, how much cooler can it get guy? Not only, uh, multiple time world champion a guy that you looked up to that only lives an hour and a half up the road from you and you get to uh you know have him haze for you 
Steve Duhon, Rod Lyman, Oatberry. I mean, there's you can name them. Brad Gleason. I got to hang out with some of the very best. Mike Smith. I, the list goes on and on. I don't want to name any more because I'm afraid I'll I'll miss them and and uh, you know I don't want to offend anybody. But these guys, every one of them, have helped me in one way or another to become who I am. Whether it was you know sitting at a card table playing pitch with Oatberry, listening to the stories and uh, you know, Rod Lyman talking to you about a steer, you know, just guys, you know, little conversations like that, that, that mean so much that they don't realize means so much as far as helping a, a young kid out and, you know, getting to, to rub shoulders or be around those guys. And not only that, get to compete with them and beat them. You know, that's a, that's a pretty good, uh, <laughs> you know, keep your shoulders up high when you do something like that. And, uh, just to be able to live that and have that experience was, was amazing. But, you know, as far as heroes, uh, and I've said this my whole career, it'd have to be my dad because he's taught me everything I know. He wasn't in the rodeo arena as much or as successful, but everything I've learned from rodeo, you know, mentality, competition, uh, farm life, ranch life, family life, um, you know, was comes from him. Yeah, that's good. This happens a lot when we interview cowboys like yourself. There is always some sort of mention. Like we had Jack Roddy on, and um, man, he's you know legend of his own self, right? And he, the father figures, mom, predominantly with the, when we talk about the, the men and the fathers and stuff, there's such a connection there. You know, like Jack Roddy was more of like a contentious one, but one that like he had to prove dad right. Or ones how you talk about how you know there was this this connective tissue that just just you know, keeps you going and who you are. And you brought up, uh, Oat Berry. So we had Oat back on during the 19 NFR on the podcast, man, there was some cool stuff we learned from him. And he talked about just the struggle, right. Of just being a cowboy and being, you know, competing at, at, at his age, but like hitchhiking, right. From rodeo to rodeo. And now, now you see him giving back with the junior world finals. How about, is there, and I, you're constantly inciting about for giving back to young people. And I've seen this on social and things like that is there some advice you could give folks young men pulling down steers that, you know, when you went through your kind of that 2001 year and that getting into that cut, right. Getting to the top 15, what's the mentality you had to hold on to and you had to keep doing just to get to that point. Yeah. You just stay true to yourself. You don't. And I feel like, and, I, and I'm proud to say this, that where I was my rookie year is where I always want to be that, that levelness of confidence but not arrogance or cockiness, you have to be who you are, who you started out being, if that makes sense. You know, don't, mm -hmm. yeah, say you win a world championship. There's no reason to think you're better than anybody else on any given day, because I promise you, there's always somebody out there that can beat you. Maybe not as consistent, but they could, there's always somebody out there. So you have to maintain that level of confidence, know where you're at, know who you are, and live your life as you and don't try to be somebody you're not. And that's the best advice I could give anybody because that's the advice, you know, I was brought up and I was raised on just to be yourself. And I feel like people are going to respect you in the long run more so than if you're just a world champion who turned out to be a guy that nobody likes. Well, you're a pretty well-liked guy. I know that. That's, I mean, I'm just meeting you for the first time. Pretty cool. And, Never heard anything bad about Luke Branquino. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe well, someone else, but I don't think I, so. I mean, like I said, I I try to be who who my parents brought me up to be and give back to like people had given to me. Let's talk about these five gold buckles. And this is love doing this with you, you champs who've won multiple championships. You know, Trevor Brazil. He answered. It was cool how he answered this. Out of those five. What were the, the highs and the lows or the struggles? Which ones had like the, the most meaning to them? They all meant something, but I, I'm pretty sure you could dissect each one and where they mean to you in your heart and your overall success that you've had in pro rodeo. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, the one that sticks out in the, every time this question's answered, which one means the most? Again, they all have a special meaning. To say one meant the most than the other, I, I would say would be a hard one to answer, but the one that sticks out in my mind is 2014. I was having a great year. I think I was leading the world standings like 70 some thousand going into Salinas. Knew I had the finals made. Um, just, just having, you know, just, just having a great year. 
So the reason it sticks out is obviously in Salinas, I got hurt, tore my lap muscle Ooh. on a steer that stopped. And the worst part is I'd had that steer at Redding, California, and won a go-round on him. I think won the average on that steer. I knew he was good, but when you're clipping out him going that fast at Salinas that when one stops, that you better get a good go or something's going to give and something gave. But, uh, you know, right then, from the time I got hurt that night, went to see the Justice Force Medicine, they're like, yeah, we think you tore your lat. Todd soon was there, and he had torn his and kind of was going through what it felt like, what, you know, what his was like, and kind of come to the conclusion without a MRI or Tandy seeing it that that was the case. And um, so, again, that night, sitting there thinking, what am I going to do? Next morning, get on the phone, MRI scheduled, doctors talk. I have four months to have this surgery and be ready to compete at the national finals rodeo. I went and seen three different doctors, four doctors, if you count Tandy. Um, and two of them said eight, six to eight months. Tandy said, yeah, you could probably do it. And then he got me in touch with Dr. Savoy in New Orleans at Tulane university who had done Todd soon's. And he said, yeah, I'll have you back in four months. Nice. I said, I'll be on a plane tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, went down, my wife and I went down to New Orleans, had the surgery. I want to say the surgery was July 19th, I believe, right around there, or the 21st, I can't remember. And, uh, you know, obviously the national final started early that year. I didn't have an extra week. Um, so went and had surgery. Doctor said everything went good. Back home and that was probably the healthiest I'd ever been going into the national finals, uh, about a week going into uh week after surgery, I was at the YMCA on the elliptical, uh, trying to keep the blood flowing, especially being a diabetic, you know, when they say don't, don't heal as fast. So my diet was spot on and my exercise routine was spot on my physical therapy, Rob Rosenberry, who had been my physical therapist from my first surgery all the way to my knee surgery last year, was pushing me and getting me ready. And, you know, we weren't necessarily trying to strengthen the lat, but we were trying to strengthen everything around it because that's what he felt like we needed to do. And again, it was uh, going into the finals, I think in sixth or seventh position, riding to Code Eldridge's horse, Rusty, Sean Mulligan on the Hazen side. I think I'd jump maybe 10, 10 steers before the national finals, but I watched a crap load of YouTube videos. <laughs> so I was trying to get my mental game sharp watching videos and uh again it was a to me a, a storybook ending for for the year that i had had you know i just um doing some research and you know, i watched that run you're on that 10th night watch that and just kind of listen to old Be joe beaver and uh talking about you know here it is wrapping this up and obviously everyone knew that what, what you were going through man it seemed pretty damn special let's go back to 2004 when you won that i i mean i think you all of a sudden you you set the bar you know, throwing down five steers in 3.9 seconds on an average, like that, how did that feel that first year? Like, and you seem like a pretty humble guy, but man, that, that's some pretty good stuff, Luke. Yeah, it was, you know, again, making the finals three years before that and, and kind of getting a feel of everything around me. And uh, I attribute a lot, uh, the majority of my success to horsepower. And that year was the first year I'd ridden Gunner, who Jesse Peterson owned uh, from Montana. Jesse did the Hazen, and that horse was just unbelievable in that building. He was unbelievable everywhere, but in that building, that horse was unbeatable. He would let you get the start. He would give you the go you needed on no matter, for me especially, on what you had. And, you know, <laughs> that is what I attribute a lot of the 2004 success to is the horsepower um, of, you know, having Gunner underneath me and, and just the sheer athlete that he was that let me be as successful as I did. And again, like you said, that, that catapulted everything into, all right, this, this is for real. I could do this. You know, it, this isn't easy, but I could do this. Um, you know, and 2004 obviously was the first year of my gold buckles. And, you know, obviously it took, four more years to win another one because of all the things that go along with rodeo. But, uh, I drew some great steers. Gunner worked great. Jesse did a great job hazing and, uh, was able to win my first world championship. 
Yeah, and also, I mean, this is the stuff that fascinates me about steer wrestling because, you know, you're hundred pound, hundreds of pounds of, of a beast that you're pulling down. You're coming off a horse at, you know, so many miles per hour, right? 3.1 seconds. Can, what was going through your head when, I mean, you were almost a tenth off of three seconds. It's one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. What was going through your head or at least kind of rewinding after you did that, right? Like what was everything in slow-mo when that happened in 2004? Yeah. I mean, you don't, you don't have time to think it's all reaction, muscle memory. And you know, that's again, stuff I tell the kids at the clinic, you go through the motion slow here. So when you get to the rodeo, it just happens naturally. Your muscle memory reacts to it. And that's pretty much exactly what happened there. You know, I was, I've been two seven at San Francisco at Cow Pass. I've been three flat at Nampa and you don't have time to think you, you try to get the best start you can and then you react. And that's what happened. You know, three, one at the finals, you react to the situation and, and <laughs> now thinking back on it and watching the video, I think, man, if I wouldn't have bobbled that steers inside horn, I could have been a little bit faster, but <laughs> you know, one little mistake in a 3.1 second run us, I'm not going to be too upset about because stuff's moving a lot of moving parts to happen for that in that short amount of time. 3.1 seconds is pretty damn fast, Luke. A lot faster than the break we need to take right now. And uh, w- when we return, let's get into how you balance injuries while winning gold buckles. And of course, a little booty shaking. Wherever you listen to the NFR Extra podcast, whether it be on iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, Google Play, or even YouTube, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. And let us know what you think of this episode or any episode by leaving a comment. I'm Oat Barry, four-time world champion steer wrestler, and this is NFR Extra. We are back with five-time world champion Luke Branquino for our Rodeo is Life segment. Let's talk about your style. Something you know you've mentioned about you know your mentors and you know guys you've looked up to. Um, so as a bulldogger, like, is this style your own or have you kind of like along the way, like steal from other people say, you know, I want to add that to my style and how I go about my, my business. You know, when I first started, it was, I watched a lot of videos. Like I said, had John Black, Joey Ames, my brother, Casey helping me out. Um, you know, and I, I wouldn't say you take little bits and pieces from everybody. Nobody has the same style as anybody else. And you try to take what other people are showing you and tweak it to fit you. And that's what I feel like I've done for me. Fortunately, I started out really small and young. So I had to work on my technique before I could incorporate size and strength. And I think that was a lot of key to my success. Um, you know, technique, then I mixed in strength and style, uh, strength and uh, size and, you know, it went from where I could run lighter cattle because of the technique or bigger, heavier cattle because of my size and strength, which I feel did help me be become as successful as I have. So, you know, yeah, again, tweaking what other people are helping you, I think, has, has a lot to do with my style. And even my clinics, there's four basic things I try to work on to help these guys. And these are basics that everybody should know or has to learn at some point. And then after that, let's figure out what works for you to those to add to that uh, to those four basic things and and that's what I've tried to do in my career clearly you're consistent and we're talking about you know NFR average championships you know you won 08 2011 14 I mean that that stuff it doesn't get a lot of kind of uh, let's say advertisement out there but that seems pretty important how important was that to you you know being being NFR average champ besides just winning the world title or titles you know obviously it's it's quite a bit more money because the average pays good. But to be completely honest, when I backed in the box, the average was the last thing on my mind. It was one, 10 one headers, get as good of a star as I can and throw them down as fast as I can. That was my whole goal. Don't the average will take care of itself. If I do my job right in these 10 rounds. Uh, but the average to me is the second most coveted buckle in the PRCA or in rodeo history. Obviously you have your gold buckle for winning the world championship, but that average buckle, 10 head in 10 nights against the very best in the world, and you accomplish that, you know. Once everything's over and you've got both buckles, you realize how hard you've worked, not only for the world championship buckle, but that also that uh, average buckle, too. So, you know, again, to say that it's, it's very special to have, you know, there's not very many people that I think one or two that have more than three average championships and to be able again to be in that group of guys is is pretty special. Well, and it seems like too to add to that, 
25 go arounds right at the NFR. It sounds like to me, Luke, you just, you just go, you do what you do. And then you're able to look back and say, Oh my goodness, I'm an NFR champ, world average, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, but that 25, that's, that's quite a bit. I mean, is that something that really is kind of, I think for you proven that, you know, how consistent you truly are? Yeah. And again, I feel, and I know most people would agree, my consistency and success has a lot to do with horses I rode. Uh, <clears throat> Gunner, Jesse, or uh, Willie, uh, Rusty. Uh, I mean, th- those those three right there at the national finals were three of the very best. I rode junior at Brad Gleason's the first year, or the second year I made him. No, I'm sorry, the first year. Another great horse. Um, you know, horsepower to me is key. If you're not mounted on the very best thing that you can get on, you're cutting yourself, you're selling yourself short on your success. And I, and I'm a sperm believer. I'll haul horses to rodeos. I'll haul them 10 hours to a rodeo. If there's a better horse there than what's in my trailer, I will leave my horse tied up and ask to get on that horse. Mm. And I'll, and I'll keep doing that. I'll work my way down. There may be three horses better than mine. I'll go, okay, start the first, get told no, start second, get told no, start third, get told no. Okay. I'm getting on my horse. Or my horse stays tied to the trailer, I get on the first. So, you know, to me, I don't look at it as me alone being successful there. It's a whole team. And, and again, it starts family support, and then you have to have your hazer support, your horsepower. So uh, do I feel like these records and everything that I've accomplished are on my own? No way. There is a whole support team that – I they they get very little recognition out there. Yeah, so last time it was on 14, you know, we're now at 2020. I mean, clearly, it sounds like you still still got what it takes. I mean, do you I mean, Luke, do you still got she's got more in you to get this to let's say add one more, two more, I mean, whatever it makes knowing what you know, how to get it? I yes, I feel like I do uh but the the obstacles for me now and they're not even obstacles, just the the other factors are family. You know, kids are like Cade's 12, Jameson's 10, Bear's going to turn five. You know, rodeo is a very selfish sport. Uh, Sam Duval, Riley's dad, and I had this conversation last year, year and a half ago at Guthrie at a WCRA event. I believe we were talking about, you know, being away from the family. And he said, Luke, rodeo is such a selfish sport because if you're not selfish, you can't be successful. And looking back at my career, I could see those exact words ringing true. You know, you go out on the road, maybe you don't talk to your family for a few days, but you know they're there supporting you and loving you and and pushing you to do what you love to do. And, you know, to go back to your question about do I have what it takes? Yes, I have what it takes, but I need to figure out how not to be as selfish because I don't want my kids to say, oh, dad, we love, we miss you, hope you win. But you know, what, what about this? What about that? So yes, I have what it takes. I just need to figure out what I need to do to get rid of the selfishness that it takes to be successful. The reason why I asked that is because I've definitely paid attention to your career and you've had to battle some injuries, man. I mean, all the way from being a young guy to where you're at today. I mean, are there any injuries that kind of just stick on your head and you're like, duh, man, I just, that, that one injury you think about or, or something that you've been dealing with for past few years now? No, I mean, er- I try not to think about anything after I'm recovered just because if it's in the back of your mind, you know, then you're, then you're not going to be successful. In fact, this year, I, uh, Richmond champions wife Paige is uh, kind of a, I'd like to call her a coach, but you know, she was a Olympic athlete herself battled issues and I reached out to her. My wife actually set me up with an appointment because I was having doubts uh, from my knees and shoulders and bicep the last three years from 2017 to, to last year. And, you know, she said she was awesome. I recommend anybody that uh, needs a, a coach, life coach or sports coach, whatever, to reach out to her because it was amazing the things that she helped me unlock that I have in me. But I wasn't letting, you know, letting them, letting myself take full advantage of them, you know, 
like, what's the worst that happens if you get hurt? You go home for six months. You've done that. You know, it's not that bad of a deal other than the surgery. So you go, you have to get that out of your mind to be successful. And, you know, speaking on getting injured and, and thoughts, she helped me realize that I can't compete with those thoughts in my head. Nobody can, because you won't be successful. Uh, with that being said, that's, that's been my goal. Focus on going out, making good runs and, uh, staying positive. Do you think of pro sports, and I think I've just heard this in just about any kind of uh, any kind of platform for sports? Injuries are part of the part of the what you deal with, right? And you just got to kind of handle them as they go and do the best you can. Sounds like you have, no doubt about it. Five gold buckles. Yeah, yeah, you have to, you know. And again, you know, had surgery in 2005 and came back and was successful from there on out until the last ones, you know, and. 17, 18, and 19, and you just, you can't, you can't let those get in your way because you won't be successful. They're always in the back of your mind. All right, man. I'm not, I'm not out to ruffle your feathers, but let's talk about, uh, 2009, your, um, that 10th round NFR. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll say this, had I done my job better, I wouldn't have put the flagger in that situation to have to make that call. Are, are you are you at peace with it now? Oh, I was at peace with it shortly after it happened. You know, um, that was I. One thing that helped me out is two days after that call, I was on an airplane going to Australia to do a clinic. So I didn't have my phone on me, so I didn't have to hear people calling and say, "Oh, you got screwed," ah, oh, this or that. Um, went to Australia with my wife, had a good trip. You know, and it was still in the back of your head, but then we went to the winter rodeos and I'd seen Butch there and, you know, made a joke. My wife was with me at one of the rodeos and, you know, thanks, Butch. You really helped me on my taxes. If you'd have dropped the flag, I'd have had to pay a hell of a lot more <laughs> uh, taxes. But, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's something that it happens in rodeo almost every event we go to. Maybe not obviously on that big of a scale, but you know, judges are human. They make mistakes. And the best thing a judge could do is when they know they make mistakes, say, Hey, I admit it. My bad. I'm wrong. We're not a professionally paid athlete. So obviously our entry fees are dime to get to the rodeo and everything is put into it. But if, if a judge says, look, I made a mistake, I'm sorry. It is so much easier to live with than, than a judge, you know, just sticking his chest out. So nope, that's the call. Again, Butch and I have, we're, we're still great friends. And, and that's just, that's part of the business. You know, when we talk about instant replay for these events and rodeos and do I feel it would be beneficial? Hell yeah, I do. I think it would be, it would be great, especially at the national finals where gold buckles are on the line, $27,000 a night go rounds. And, you know, uh, there's a lot that will need to go into it to make it right, but I do think it would be beneficial and not to get off subject, but yes, I got over that call and everything's good. Again, things happen for a reason. I'd had two gold buckles, would have had three. If I wouldn't have got, if I would have got that third one, then who knows? I might not have got the next three after that. Man, I love your perspective. You always turn it from, you know, whatever it may be, if it's negative to some sort of positive, that's, that's awesome. Uh, your booty shake, where, man, where did you develop the whole booty shake, uh, in your career? Oh, that was, uh, that was that was something I thought would never take off. I hoped it never would. But uh, I, I can't remember Omaha, Nebraska, the tour finale in 2004. The announcers were – the crowd was – they didn't think the crowd was really into it. And the producer, rodeo producer, didn't think so. So if anybody knows Rooster Reynolds from Montana, he used to do a crazy chicken dance. And they're like, why don't you do something like Rooster did? Do a dance, do something. I'm like, I'm not doing, I don't know. I'm not going to do something and embarrass myself. Well, they kept hounding me and hounding me. And finally, I thought, well, if I do this, they will leave me alone. They'll shut up. I won't ever have to do it again. And I was wrong. It uh, it was something they kept calling on. And that's where that, that's where that was born. Well, I'd tell you, it's something that I think probably – is kind of a curse for you, right? So you're at other rodeos. I mean, rodeo announcers calling for it or looking for it. I mean, is that, does it going to get a little frustrating at times or is it something you just kind of just, just go with the flow? Oh, you just go with the flow now. I mean, it's, uh, I guess you could say a signature move that why people like to see it. They do, but, uh, 
and then on the other note, I guess if I do it, it means I'm winning something. So again, taking and putting into a positive outlook. Yeah. So obviously you're going to be 40 here, man, right around the corner. You know, thanks you, for bringing that up. Now I can't be positive. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're still rodeoing, pulling down steers. Are some other things that you look forward to doing? Because I've, man, I've, I've watched you on TV. Your commentating is great. You know, you're genuine. You, you have great insight. I mean, is that something else besides the ranching world that you're, you know, totally getting after? I mean, is that something else that you may kind of dive in, be another Donnie Gay or Joe Beaver? Oh, yeah, for sure. I really enjoy doing that. Um, you know, I've got to work with some great people, Butch Knowles, Jeff Metter, Justin McKee, uh, great producers, uh, Joe Libero, uh Jason Jaquette on you know, I've done stuff with CBS Sports for the PBR. I've gone on and visited with uh, at the, with those guys. Uh, worked with some awesome people, Justin McBride, Cody Lambert. I mean, Kate Harrison. Just these people are are awesome to work with, and I've learned so much from them. And to be able to, you know, have people enjoy my commentary means a lot. And to be able to love it, you know, along with working with them is is great. So yes, it's it's definitely something that I will uh, you know keep pursuing after I'm done competing. Nice. Yeah. I think you're natural, man. I mean, it, it's working around production like I've had 20 years. You either have or you don't. You definitely got it. I appreciate it. Any other bucket list items for Luke Branquino that you haven't got after? Oh, my wife might ask me questions like that. And I just, usually I think about them like 20 minutes after the questions asked. So, uh, I mean, not really. I've, I've had other than winning, you know, more gold buckles, you know, hit that number six. Not, not really. I mean, I've been blessed with my career. I've been blessed with my family, uh, blessed where I live. You know, I, I can't think of much more that, that I would need to, to make me any better than I am. So uh, very fortunate, you know, and yeah, I mean, as far as that goes, I'm, I'm happy. Nice. This is this is it. This is the last one I got for you, Luke. If your three sons decide they want to take their own shot at rodeoing for a living and, you know, being a third generation family to do so, what what's your most important advice to them? Like what can you I mean, I know you've shared a lot here, but like for them specifically, what what is it you tell them? I tell them hard work. You got to put in the work to get the rewards. You got to be happy doing the work. If, if you're doing work you're not happy with, you know, other than the dishes and chores, you got to do that whether you're happy or not. But in life, you know, whether they're in the practice pen or playing baseball or whatever, if they, they want to do it, I said, you have to put the work in to be successful and you will be happy in the end because you'll achieve what you were trying to achieve. And I think that's what helped me become who I am that my parents have instilled in me. And you, you got a blessed life, man. I uh, feel very fortunate to have uh, been able to spend some time with you here on NFR Extra. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on the show. I uh, don't want to hold you up too much more, man. I, I know you're a busy dude ranching <laughs> and probably getting ready for the next. By the way, so what are you competing here pretty soon? Is there anything you, you got coming up? Yeah, we're. Uh, I'm flying out Monday. We're up Phillipsburg. On Tuesday, Dodge City, Kansas, Wednesday, and then I'm entered with uh, Dirk, uh, Dirk Tavener, Stetson Jorgensen, Peyton McIntyre, and I just, I, I'm at the point of my career, I said, I'm going to get in the truck, you guys are going to tell me where to nod my head, don't care where we're at, where we're going, as long as we can go win some money, I've spent 18 years of planning it out, and where we're going, telling people what they need to do, what plane tickets they need to buy, where we need to be, I said, I'm going to be the kid this time, and just uh, follow along, so we're, uh, we got the next two, three weeks planned out pretty good and hit some rodeos and win some money. Thanks for coming on NFR extra, man. I mean, God bless on your, your, your endeavors and definitely good luck here for the, the immediate success that you can get here during the turn, you know, while you get to compete and yeah, thanks for coming on the show. You bet. Thank you. We want to thank five time world champion, Luke Branquino to talk to us about his journey for our rodeo is life segment on NFR Extra. And stay tuned for episode 59 because it's all country music from Compton, California to the streets of Nashville, all the way up to Alberta, Canada, when singer-songwriter Corb Lund and country music artist and writer Shane Miner visits 
NFR Extra. Want to experience more of the NFR? Then visit nfrexperience.com. And we invite you to subscribe to NFR Extra on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like what you've been hearing on NFR Extra, we would love it if you gave us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe. NFR Extra. All dirt. All rodeo. All year. Gotta make it out to Vegas, where the big boys roam. With the rovers and the racers and the bulls and the browns. And the ladies in the skin-tight ringers and the cowboy 